Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. I bet you didn't know that inventing activity by black inventors peaked in 1899, and it has never recovered. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of white college graduates. That's just one of the reasons why you need to know about Invent Together. When our patent system gets more diverse, our nation will get stronger and more successful. Find out how you can help diverse inventors and unleash economic opportunity at inventtogether.org. After my crazy day, my packed commute, all those unread emails in my inbox. But I'm getting stronger, faster, and pushing myself further every day. I don't care if I'm not like everyone else. This punching bag is the best way to end my day. (laughs) Fearless is knowing yoga isn't your style. That's the power of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Federal Employee Program. Learn more about our healthy benefits at fepblue.org slash getmore. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie Homero, Democratic pollster with the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis Anderson, Republican pollster and co founder of Echelon Insights. And each week, we're going to reveal the hidden secrets of the public mind, looking at the biggest polling stories driving news, politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. This week's top lines, Donald Trump surges to the front of the Republican pack, and some new statewide polls in swing states. Do they show that Hillary Clinton is in a little bit of trouble or that people are feeling the burn? (laughs) (laughs) We take a look at the latest polling on the Iran deal. Um, We'll also take a look at some polling about how the Hispanic vote might affect this coming election and how parents are thinking about social media. Um, Finally, we will take a look at some polling about campaign finance reform, an issue that isn't often talked about kind of outside the beltway. So we'll take a look at what folks, what actual people think about these issues. Right, right. Exactly. So, you know, it's a week has passed since our last show and this big news is still Trump. I was looking at, I don't remember if it was Post or New York Times. And if you looked at the politics page, of the t- first seven stories, five of them are about Trump. I mean, it's, it is completely insane. And now that you have uh, several weeks of him consistently being number one or number two in the polls, then it's just fair game for us to con- continue to talk about him. Um, even what happened last weekend where he, uh, where Trump made some critical remarks about John McCain that infuriated a lot of folks on the left and the right. It doesn't seem to have done anything to his polling numbers, but it's maybe too early to tell. We're not sure. What do you think, Kristen? I think a lot of the reason why you're seeing Donald Trump do so well in the polls now is a combination of a very small slice of the Republican electorate that just doesn't care and loves his style and is just impervious to the idea that he is not the savior of the GOP. And it's like a protest anger vote. Um, And then you have a lot of folks that I think just are not paying that much attention. And he is the name they heard in the news. And part of the reason why this theory, I have this theory, is if you look at the crosstabs of the ABC poll. Now, granted, I I sort of got a little fired up on Twitter when this poll came out. um, Because, by the way, ABC, Washington Post. Have you been picking Twitter fights with Donald Trump? If so, has he responded to you? (laughs) I wonder what that would do for book sales. Hmm, Filing that one away in the mental bank. You should do it. I think there are people, I don't know if people, I should have maybe researched this before I started talking about it. There are definitely people on my Facebook feed who I guess you can like generate a like fake 
Trump Twitter, like, you know, you're a loser, right? <laughs> yeah, I did that a, a couple times yesterday and got, like, liberal liberal clown Kristen Soltis Anderson. I got a couple good ones. Um, right, well, we can make it real, you know, make it happen. Well, so the, the thing to remember, and we've talked on this show before, is that a lot of these national polls, it's not a national poll of Republican primary voters. It's a national poll of adults, and then a smaller chunk of those are registered voters, and then a smaller chunk of those are Republicans, and then a smaller chunk of those are Republican primary voters. And they're not even in early primary states in a lot of places, so, which is a completely states. different experience. So I kind of went off a little bit where I was trying to make the case. It's not that the ABC poll is bad. It's a great poll of a thousand adults nationwide. It's it. Gary Langer and that polling team is excellent. They know what they're doing. The party ID on the sample looks right. Everything's fine. It's that the coverage of the polls, it, it's asking a poll to do something it's not equipped to do. <laughs> it's asking a subsample of like 200 people to stand in as, you know, this is how the Republican primary will play out. And so it's the coverage that's been bothering me more than the methodology. And we should say that that poll showed Trump two to one over Walker. So he was number one at 24, Walker at 13, Jeb Bush at 12. Right. When you look in the crosstabs, though, and again, this is tough because it's it's kind of a small number of interviews we're talking about in the first place. Trump, it's not that he's winning the base. He's not winning over the like very conservative voters. He's winning over the moderates, which to me means that it's it's a lot of folks that are very kind of low information. Right. You, you, being moderate does not require you to be low information or vice versa. But if you're somebody that doesn't really pay attention that much and you're not really ideological and you're like, eh, sure, I'll take this poll. When they ask you what your ideology is, you're like, yeah, I guess I'm moderate. I don't really pay attention to this stuff. And then yeah, I guess I'll vote for Trump. Like, I think that's kind of a stand in for a lot of folks that are not they're not going to show up and vote in a primary they're next They're not spring. waiting for John Kasich's announcement. Or... No, they're not. They're they're not. So I, I remain – I do not – I am not concerned that Donald Trump is going to win the Republican primary. I think this is going to evaporate sooner than later. Herman Cain was at 26 percent at one point in the Republican polls last time around. So anything can happen. But I, I really just don't think that like, oh, my gosh, Trump is atop this one national poll. Everybody freak out. I, I really believe that if we get a month from now after the first few debates, this fever will have broken. Yeah. I mean, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, it's it is it's pretty interesting. I mean, the Washington Post ABC poll showed that a majority of Americans say that Donald Trump does not reflect the core values of the Republican Party. I mean, that's, I think, pretty interesting. Mark Murray, our friend at, who is at NBC, uh, wrote something today about how uh, – Last time around, there was some polling on Trump and the folks who were voting for Trump were basically non-Romney. They, they were the anybody but Romney people and that they eventually went to Santorum. And maybe that's a different group of people now. Maybe that maybe currently Trump voters are the anti anybody but Jeb Bush folks. Or maybe they are the folks who are just saying there's just too many. There are too many candidates. It's way too early. There are way too many people. I don't know who any of these folks are. So I guess I'm for Trump. I think the immigration stuff has a large thing to do with it, too. Um, I think there are you know, you ask this question, do you think Donald Trump reflects the core views of the Republican Party and a majority say no? But then there's this question that was asked by Gallup. Um, in thinking about Donald Trump, if he were elected president, would he do a good job, a fair job, or a bad job in handling each of the following issues? The economy is where he gets the strongest marks. He gets pretty weak marks on everything involving foreign affairs. But immigration, it's very, like, it's kind of polarized. He gets 48% saying he'd do a bad job. But you have a third of America, or 29% saying they think he'd do 
a good job. So yeah, and you that's overall, so we don't know. You're you're not mushy on Donald Trump on immigration. You either love him or you hate him. And I did I conducted a Tom Friedman focus group. It was my cab driver in Las Vegas <laughs> on Sunday. And she and I actually didn't bring up politics. I don't do this normally, but she asked me when she, I said I was flying back to DC, oh, what do you think? Um and, she, and so I I started asking her and she said, you know, Trump is crazy, but he's crazy enough to say what some people are really thinking. And right. so and, and and then I did a focus group last night um, where, you know, the same kind of sentiment where everybody was like, he's a buffoon. He's a joke. But you know what? Sometimes he says the politically incorrect things that people are thinking. And it's I like thought, voting for your crazy uncle, you know, president instead of president of Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, there are people States. out there that are like, well, he's willing to say we need to build a wall. Nobody else is willing to say that. It's like, oh, like I'm sitting in this cab thinking <laughs> – I'm just here to listen. I'm just here to listen and observe. Right. But I'm just I, I do think there's a chunk of people in the Republican Party who that's appealing to them. I think there was another po- question in the Washington Post ABC poll, which I don't have in front of me, but said, do you feel that Mexico sends you know, criminals or hardworking people? And I think it was fewer than a fifth said criminals. But that's still... You know, it's not zero, right? That's, that's the, the Trump voter. That's the twenty percent who are saying, "Yeah, I'm going to say that in a poll." That that answer is appropriate. I mean, there are probably some people who don't want to answer that way because they have a sense that that's an inappropriate answer. Yeah. Um. Yeah. You know, I did focus groups in Vegas, and my cab driver asked me, "Do you ever talk about love? Not sex. I mean love." <laughs> I said, oh. "I said, who would pay for that? <laughs> who would the client be? That sounds fun." But <laughs> oh wow! I've never had that client before but you know, i guess the only you're out there <laughs> the only other thing that i think is, has been a more interesting shakeup in the field besides the trump rise so a couple weeks ago i had said that like the the tiers in the race were you had this top tier of scott walker jeb bush and marco rubio um and marco rubio has kind of fallen back a little bit um in the national and the abc poll he's only at seven percent so he's you know trailing Jeb and Scott Walker fairly significantly. Again, this is only of about two to 300 interviews. Your margin of error is pretty big. All caveats, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then also he's only at 5% in Iowa. He's behind Mike Huckabee. He's behind Ted Cruz. He's behind Ben Carson. Um, so, I mean, the, the, the tier in Iowa has never been the same as the tiers nationwide, but it just seems to me that Rubio hasn't really caught fire with anybody yet. Like Walker has his core of people and a lot of them are in Iowa and Jeb has his core of people and a hundred million dollars. And I think Rubio. He had a very long bounce, right? He had a very mm-hmm. long bounce, but then what can you do to keep that going? And one thing he could have done that folks have noticed is he could have stood out and and said, you know, the way Trump is talking about immigrants is outrageous. Um, you know, that was left to Lindsey Graham to do and sort of the best week that Lindsey Graham has had in his campaign for a while. Um, so, you know, so we'll see. I mean, obviously, there's there's plenty of time for all this um, to move around. And we should note, in case people are wondering what they hear in the background, that baby Beckett is here as our <laughs> in-studio guest. And he doesn't really have very – he may hear him squawk. He doesn't have very strong feelings unless we're talking about show tunes or maturity breaks are pretty much the only two things he has strong, <laughs> positive feelings about. That's basically his platform. He's my favorite guest so far, though. 
Uh, he knows how to keep his answers very short. <laughs> <laughs> the other big poll that just came out um, the morning of the show that, that we are taping, um, it's, we're taping this on Wednesday, um, is a Quinnipiac poll in Colorado, Iowa, and Virginia. And that's been taking up all the headline space in my Twitter feed this morning, um, in part because the poll shows most of the Republican candidates beating Hillary Clinton in head-to-head matchups in Colorado, Iowa, and Virginia, three blue states. So people are sort of wondering, is this for real? And I I took a look at the party ID makeup of the poll. Again, saying that generally Quinnipiac is a good pollster, is a reputable pollster. But there's we're now in the kind of unskew the polls world again, where it's like, well, what's the party ID break on the sample? Are there too many Republicans in the sample? Are there too many Democrats in the sample? And if you look at the samples of all of these polls, you actually wind up with what I think are way too many Republicans, at least in Colorado and in Virginia, um, which is, I think, partially to explain why Republicans are doing so well. So, um, you know, the, right now it has, for instance, Rubio up eight over Clinton in Colorado, up two in Virginia. Um, it has even Jeb Bush uh, up by about five over Clinton in Colorado. Um, you actually see Bernie Sanders doing pretty well, about just as well as Hillary Clinton. I mean, that's the big news states. here. I mean, in the national Democratic primary polling, not the New Hampshire and Iowa where there's been movement, but nationally, you haven't really seen as much movement for Sanders, um, in part because they're not, you know, they haven't felt the burn yet. They're not experiencing sort of the early state stuff, the climate that you feel if you're in Iowa and New Hampshire. Um, so he has a lower name ID and, and so on. But the fact that he does as well as Clinton in these or er, er, battleground, but not early primary states. Well, I guess except for Iowa, is a is is pretty interesting. It's pretty surprising, and I think it's the first general election Sanders matchup poll we've seen. I think so. Um, it's definitely the first that I can remember. And they also tested Biden matchups. So Biden versus Rubio, Biden versus Bush, Biden versus Walker, um, and there really isn't a big difference in how. Except Clinton, in Virginia. Biden and Sanders. Yeah, that's true. In in Virginia, Sanders does not do as well as as Hillary um, and and as Joe Biden. But for the most part, I mean, it's it's just it's mark. It's remarkable because you haven't really seen many head to head ballot tests between Democrats who aren't Hillary. Right. Um, and one of the things we've talked about on the show before is as from a polling perspective, how do you. How do you do that? How do you do all of these different ballot tests? And we now have a bit of our answer. So the way it looks like Quinnipiac did it is they did something called split sampling. So for for our listeners who are not polling experts, split sampling basically means that you pick a question, two questions, and half of your survey respondents will get question A, and half of your survey respondents will get question B. So for instance, if I want to figure out, do people like my message to be Kristen loves freedom or do I want it to be Kristen loves liberty? I can test A with freedom and B with liberty and I can see which one turns out better at the end of my poll. Um, Or you can use split sampling to fit in a bunch of stuff where you just don't have the space to fit it all. So they asked fave, unfave questions. Do you have a favorable or unfavorable view of a lot of these candidates? And for most of them, besides the really big names, they did split sampling. So they did not ask all of their respondents in Colorado, Iowa and Virginia, do you have a favorable or unfavorable view of George Pataki, but they did ask half of them. Um, and so the the upside is it lets you ask questions about this unbearably large Republican field. Um, but the downside is you're sort of eliminating some of your statistical power. So right. you're only asking it of half the sample and you got to make sure that 
your two random halves of the sample are roughly similar in makeup. And so it's it's it it's good because it lets you ask more questions. And we clearly need a lot of questions in order to understand this field. But um, it also, you know, you got to make sure that both of your split samples are made up of the same type of people. Yeah, yeah. And it's something that we use all the time for internal polling as a way to test messaging. So if you wanted to test two different, slight, you know, two slightly different versions of a message, you would ask one version one way and then ask the other half for the sample another version that's very similar but not exactly the same. And then you can compare rather than asking people to come up with, the, you know, to say for themselves how they feel about the difference. You can glean that from the responses. Um, the other reason... We don't have a lot of polling on the on these general election head to heads is because neither the Sanders campaign nor, for that matter, the Trump campaign are spending that much on polling. Um, <laughs> it's something they have in common. Trump has spent only twenty five thousand dollars in polling, which we can say not just because we're in the industry, but we can actually say is not really that much in the scheme of things, especially for someone who claims to be worth whatever he says, a jillion dollars. I mean, if you're Carly Fiorina and you have a million dollars, maybe you don't want to spend $200,000 on polling quite yet. But for some of these other campaigns, for these big campaigns that are well-funded, you should be testing your messaging and, and refining and maybe figuring out how people react to some of your um, your early policy speeches. The Sanders campaign is spending $0 so far on polling. And I say that not because, as I've disclosed before, my husband works as an advisor on the Sanders campaign. But in fact, his business partner said that in the press, I think, at Huffington Post yesterday saying it would make polling would make my life easier. So that Tad Devine said that. And we hear you. We hear you here. So it would be incredible if we had Trump v. Sanders and you know, no polling. Yeah. So my at, at the Echelon offices, we have a big whiteboard where um, this summer, Declan, who was our intern, his job was to put up a new interesting quote on the board every day. And toward the end of his internship, every day it was the latest, greatest Trump quote, like whatever Trump had said that day was on the board. So Declan is now gone. His internship has ended. And so now I had to take up the responsibility of putting a new quote on the board. And yesterday it was Donald Trump's if pollsters were so good, they should just yes. run for office themselves, quote. <laughs> that was – I mean that – I'm just – I want to just keep that up on the board forever. I know. It's, you can't really trump that quote. I mean that quote is pretty good. Nice, nice one. Nice one. Can't trump that quote. Um, Maybe he can. Yeah. If, uh, if if these pollsters were so good, they would run for office themselves. So you hear that, listeners? No, if you're it's a pollster because there, we're so smart that we're not running for <laughs> office ourselves. Yeah. I, I know too much. I know, know too much about how the sausage is made. Yes, exactly. So. So, yeah. Anyway, so then you know the last uh, the last little bit on this is you know a little bit on what's going on with minority voters, and this is we're getting to the stage where you see a lot of different groups uh, talking about the importance of their demographic group to what the election will be, and we'll continue to see that. And you see that where we're talking about uh, Latino voters, where Latino decisions did an analysis showing that Republicans would need to get between you know somewhere in the forty to fifty two percent range with Latino voters in order to win in the general. And that's more than what uh, George W. Bush got. I think he got 44. Did he get 44 among mm-hmm. Latinos? So, you know, so that's a high watermark um, with a low in the, of 27 for, for Mitt Romney. So um, and that's looking at a variety of different scenarios, uh, what depending on what African-American turnout would be or what um, or what uh, white turnout or white support for the Republican nominee would be. So we'll link to that so you can look at that in a lot more detail. You also hear a lot of talk on, on the primary, Democratic primary side, what how uh, African-American voters feel about Clinton versus Sanders. That's been in the news of the over the past few weeks. 
Um, I haven't seen any data, though, necessarily supporting that Sanders is weak with African-American voters in a way that is above and beyond the fact that he's just simply less well-known than Clinton is right now. The Washington Post ABC poll shows that he's net favorable with non-whites, and that's not non-white Democrats. That's just non-whites, everybody overall. So I think we need to see a little bit more polling, whether that'll come out from the Sanders campaign Probably or, from, not. <laughs> or from somebody else. We'll have to wait and see. I'm sure that would also make Tad's life, it would make our life easier here at the pollsters <laughs> if there's more. Um, uh, just to parse that out, because I think, you know, if you go back to 2007, people would write stories. I think I've talked about this on the show before, um, showing, well, you know, Obama's not doing as well with African-Americans as he should be uh, or as Clinton is. And part of that was because he was simply less well-known at the time and, and uh, reporters were looking at his overall favorable, which was going to be lower. didn't mean he was unfavorable. It just meant he was less well-known. Is that happening to Sanders and the coverage? I don't know the answer to that, but I think it's something you know to consider or at least flag that the difference between how the two are known, certainly nationwide, outside the early primary states is going to be pretty substantial. Mm-hmm. Well, part of how these candidates will wind up getting known outside of these early primary states will involve uh, both their earned media and paid media. And where will they get that money for that paid media? From lots and lots of donors. We are at the moment sort of in the in the thick of the big, you know, FEC announcements and everybody filing their reports and their financial disclosures. Um, I think as the last Trump thing we'll say today, I think Trump just filed some kind of financial disclosure that linked him to like 500 different LLCs and what have you. So I can't imagine how unfun it would be to have the Trump campaign compliance person. His his, (laughs) – The forum was not designed for a man of his wealth. Is Margie. that what he said? That was or is that, that what you say? <laughs> no, that was that is a quote from the press release they put out. Put that on the board. But that that <laughs> yep, that can go on the board when I take the the pollsters running for office one down. So, but let's talk for a little bit about what people think about campaign finance. So, um, Monmouth released some numbers today. Uh, they're a little inside baseball. Um, campaign finance stuff can can generally be. It's one of those things that everybody says. Ah, there's too much money in politics, or but it's not. It's It's not usually a motivating issue or one that people have studied very deeply. Um, And given that so many people – this this poll is interesting because it asks how kind of campaign finance rules are affecting things. So not just what do you think the rules should be, but what do you think the effect of the rules or lack thereof is having. Um, And so there are lots of people that are are currently pretty undecided, which makes sense. I mean these are questions that you'd need – you do a PhD dissertation That's figuring right. out what the, what the actual answer is. <laughs> I mean, is. people who work in politics don't know all the details of how all this stuff works. Yeah, and so, do super PACs make it easier for someone to enter the race and take off like a lightning bolt? Huh? Does it make it harder <laughs> for someone to enter I'm the a race respondent and I go, huh? <laughs> yeah, what, what are you talking about? Um, yeah. So, Margie, what, what does this poll tell us? Well, you know, they asked a couple different questions, and this so this is Monmouth, and about half say that looser finance rules and an influx of campaign cash made the presidential nominating process worse than in the past. Only 10% say it's better. A third say, roughly, that it's had no impact. Now, you know, this is one of those questions where you could almost put anything in that blank. You know, Americans feel that blank has made the presidential nominating process worse, right, because people feel that just politics is worse, generally speaking. Um, But what was interesting is that there's no party, real party break. I mean, Democrats are a little bit more and independents are a little bit more likely than Republicans to say that the changes have hurt the process. But it's not overwhelming. If you think about the, the comparable 
discussion amongst the candidates or amongst party activists on campaign finance reform. It's not even in the same ballpark. There's no real difference, but there's a pretty big difference in terms of how politicians and activists talk about it. Um, And then they ask some even more policy campaign nuanced questions. Do these looser rules help or hurt good candidates trying to make a run? Um, Does it make it more likely that a qualified but lesser known candidate will be able to gain attention? Um, People don't really seem to have any idea with that one. About a quarter say it makes it more likely that a qualified candidate will be able to gain voter attention. About the same amount say less likely and a plurality say has no impact. And I think it's just that's just asking people to calculate too many steps, frankly. I mean, it's not that I don't want to know the information, know the answer to that also. Like the folks who wrote these questions, sometimes you really just want to know the answer. Um, but that doesn't mean asking the question and, and that the answer is actually the answer that you're looking for. Um, yeah. And there's a similar question. Well, does this influx of campaign money, how does it hurt less credible candidates? Here about a plurality say the looser finance rules increase the likelihood that an unqualified candidate can stay in the race longer and just 14 percent say it's less likely. I'm not sure. I mean, this is something I've never seen any polling on. To what extent people know how long candidates stay in the race or are the you know candidates who stay in the race more or less qualified? I mean, I don't think people know exactly who's in the race or not. I mean, that maybe yeah. itself would be its own interesting question to say, who do you know who's in the race currently and see what people can say? Uh, so as somebody who has asked that question very yes. recently in a focus group setting, yeah. I get a lot of like – it's it's not that the the voters are are intention are are dumb or uninformed. They're just they go like they can name. Okay, I think there are sixteen people in, right. and they go. I'm just not even paying attention until it's, it's too fewer. many. It's yeah. just too many. It's yeah. like this wall of noise. So I I think this idea of like oh do do you think Rick Santorum stayed in the race too long last time? Like I don't think people know how long people stay in or drop out. Right. I, don't think, I think that's so far off their radar right. screen. And even if you did know, that was a while ago. And then to say, well, what was the role of campaign finance and foster freeze and super PACs and all that? I, I mean, then then you're asking people to dig deep um, into their memory bank in a way that I, I just think would be pretty tough for people to do. Well, the other big news in the uh, issue in the news this week is all about Iran. Um, You have the Iran nuclear deal, and we finally have some polling coming out about how Americans are reacting to it. So up first, we have a YouGov poll, um, a survey of of adults nationwide um, that found that 53 percent or 43 percent say they support um, a, a deal that would limit Iran's nuclear activity in return for the lifting of major economic sanctions against Iran. Um, so you have 43% who support, 30% who oppose, and about a quarter who are not sure. Among Republicans, opposition is big, 55%. Among Democrats, support is big, 60%. And among independents, it's pretty split. Yeah. <laughs> you have about 38 who say they support, um, 31 who say they oppose, 31% who don't really know. Um, there are not a lot of people, however, who are confident that the deal will work. So even though 43% of adults support the deal, only 23% are very or somewhat confident that the deal will actually prevent Iran from developing a nuclear weapon. And 
And, you know, there's a lot of polling out on this. And ABC, I think, did something. And there's um, AP and Fox. And, you know, there's been polling on Iran now for a while. We haven't always been covering it. Um, But it is all pretty consistent in the two points. You know, you can see it in the two questions that Kristen just talked about. First, people generally tend to support it. It's a little bit dependent on question wording and whether you ask, is it a good idea versus do you support or oppose? You see some little bit of differences there. People generally, though, want a deal or support a deal, at least overall. Um, But then if you ask a separate question, well, do you are you confident that it'll work or do you trust Iran or are you concerned about Iran as a partner? Um, Then then people, you know, the opposite is true. People say, no, I don't trust them. I have concerns. I'm not confident that that group of questions all also has this very similar result. So people can hold those two views simultaneously in their head. They can say, I support a deal. And they can also say, I don't trust Iran. Yeah. And and there's a lot of polling. I think this is from the AP poll where they, they ask questions like, you know, the United States currently has economic sanctions in place against a number of different countries. And it names each country. And for each one, it asks people to say, should we increase or decrease our sanctions against those countries? And for Iran, you only have 19 percent who say we should decrease or eliminate our sanctions. Um, You have a third that say we should increase the sanctions now. But then again, on countries like Cuba, you have, you know, a plurality that say we should be decreasing or eliminating our sanctions. Um, And then on a country like uh, North Korea, you have even you know thirty six percent who say yes, we need to keep our sanctions. So yeah. it varies country to country, but it is interesting that on the one hand you have a lot of people saying they support the deal, but when you ask just the question about sanctions, you don't find as much support for the idea of of eliminating these sanctions. Um, just one funny note: so uh, in the YouGov crosstabs about this Iran um, deal, this was pointed out by by one of our listeners uh, that the Pollsters can have like names for the different tables of their surveys, you know, like a like a shorthand, a name of the variable. And one of the variables was a frenemy. It was a question about like, is Iran a friend or an enemy? <laughs> or is Iran a frenemy? Good job, close reader of crosstabs. <laughs> so that's that's the kind of little Easter egg that you know you get to, to giggle at when you find it. That's good. That's good. But yeah, it's um I mean it's tough and we've talked about this point before is how do you get voters to or respondents to express opinions about an issue that is complicated and requires background knowledge even more than campaign finance reform that they may not, you know, have on a day-to-day basis. And also what none of these questions get at, which, you know, is still an important issue, not the most important issue, but an important issue, which which is how to views toward uh, the Iran deal affect what's going to happen in 2016. And not just with the presidential race, uh, not just with the primary, um, although have a role in the primary and also have a role in terms of, you know, how it affects views toward Clinton, but also how it reflects views toward Democrats in the Senate or Republicans in the Senate. Mm -hmm. You know, are there Democrats who are going to break with Obama? Are there Republicans who are going to really, you know, challenge Obama on this? Or are they going to, you know, how, to the extent to people are, that senators are getting on board or standing up to Obama on this, how does that reflect what's going on in those races? Or ultimately, by that time, it's going to be seen as, you know, sort of old news. We don't know yet. Yeah. Um, and I, I think the other question, too, is, you know, you have these huge numbers of people that say we can't necess- we can't trust 
what Iran says. But that's, I think, very separate from, well, should we be negotiating with them? Should we be engaging in diplomatic relations? So you see hugely divergent numbers on those sorts of things. You have, you know, 80 percent who say, no, we can't trust Iran. But then you have, you know, 49 percent who say it's a good idea to be negotiating with them at least. Um, so, you know, there, there's I, I think the polling is showing us that people are generally OK with the idea that we, we're we trying to get Iran to not have a nuclear program, um, but they don't have confidence that it's going to work. And I bet you seeing if it has the possibility of working will be what really affects – if it winds up in headlines that Iran suddenly has a nuclear weapon, that will certainly change the poll numbers. Yes, yeah, right. Exactly. But, you know, well, there's there's a lot sort of out of political hands or out of our own hands that, that will affect how people view those numbers. So to wrap up, um, Pew released some data on how parents view – or use social media. And it's pretty interesting. It's not a surprise, I think, to most that moms are more likely to be on social media than dads and and use social media for various kinds of parenting things. What I thought was particularly interesting about this is that you have more people responding to good news on social media than responding to bad news, which is a little bit different than sort of the if it bleeds, it leads. If this, you know, what you see in news where people are more or campaign political advertising where people are more likely to respond to and remember the negative or the combative. That's actually not true in our own personal life where people are more, far more likely to say they respond to good news than to bad news. I thought that was pretty interesting. And parents overall across gender are more likely to use basically any social media platform than are non-parents. So I don't know. What do you think of that, Kristen? I guess none of it's that much of a surprise. Yeah, well, I think it, the the only one where parents are less likely than non-parents to use it is Instagram. But that makes sense because Instagram is so much more often used by like people who are in their younger, you yes. know, people in their 20, 20s and stuff. So they're less likely to be parents just in general. Um, but yeah, it, it, I, I kind of chuckled when I saw that, you know, parents, three quarters of parents say they use Facebook daily. I'm like, my Facebook feed. Anecdotally (laughs) indicates that that is correct. Your children are all lovely. Thank you for sharing the pictures. I love it. I, you know, but it's for sure. (laughs) Seventy-five percent of my feed is my friends' kids. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's good to make my view. It's good for those who follow me. Good to mix it up a little bit. A little bit of parent stuff. A little bit of, you know, I mean, the cats really have gotten short shrift since I've been a parent. That's just nothing I can do about that. But (laughs) you know, a little bit of politics. A little bit of like, you know, (laughs) ranting against the world. You know, (laughs) you know, kind of throw a mix of all of it in there. You know, birthday greetings and all that stuff. Well. the thing that I, I found really interesting and something that as someone who does not have kids yet but would like to one day that, that terrifies me is the amount of parenting advice that is out there on the Internet. Um, there was a funny thing at McSweeney's. So McSweeney's is this website that does like really kind of I think smart comedy. Um, and it was it was a fake parenting advice column. Oh, I love that. And it was – and, and every too. sentence basically contradicted the sentence yeah, before good. it. Like, when your children are misbehave in public, you must be firm with them immediately <laughs> and correct them on their behavior. Never correct your child in public. Always – you know, like, so every sentence would basically assert that, like, something you do as a parent is absolutely critical. And then the next sentence would be the complete opposite. Like, Yeah. McSweeney's always good for a little – you know, I just feel like having the Internet constantly tell me that everything I'm doing is wrong. I know. Right. Would just not 
would not enjoy. Well, the alternative is what happened to me this past weekend where I was at the Tacoma Park Farmer's Market. That's the setup of the story. And this woman (laughs) walks up to me and says, excuse me, I'm an expert in child safety and your sling that you're carrying your baby in is not safe. No. I'm like, I cannot think of anything more Tacoma Parky than a mom coming up to me at the farmer's market telling me she's an expert and that I'm doing something wrong and my sling of all things which is you know for those who don't know is sort of the epitome of kind of like crunchy mama thing it's now ubiquitous but anyway that's the that's a very I know Beckett was annoyed too yes (laughs) oh my gosh it was pretty funny (laughs) I can't even imagine yeah so I, I think I handled it well since I was in public but it was, that don't do that either. Go to the internet next time and just rant against me anonymously in a forum. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that would be much better. <laughs> okay. Well, um, so anyway, here's what we learned this week. Um, if it's Trump versus Sanders, everyone's going to have to move to public polling. Um, <laughs> speaking of fun field, voters in both parties say campaign finance rules are not helping. Uh, voters say they're following the Iran deal and are both supportive and cautious simultaneously. And hey, moms out there, if you're using, and dads, if you're using social media, um, send me an email or tweet me or post on our Facebook page your advice on having the best maternity break ever. Assuming, obviously, of course, accounting for the fact that we're already I'm at the office doing the podcast, and we've, I've watched some focus groups uh, remotely. Aside from those tips, which I've nailed. Marjorie, right now you are the picture of, like, having it all. <laughs> I think something might be a little out of balance. But anyway, <laughs> so uh, aside from those two crack tips and pro tips, if you have other tips, you can tweet us, and we can then, you know, reinforce the findings of the Pew study. You can find us on Twitter at, at the pollsters, and you can find Margie at, at Margie O'Mero and kind find me at at K Soltis Anderson. We're also on Facebook and you can find us uh, if you want to listen to the show on pretty much any podcatcher that's out there or www.thepolsters.com. Yeah. And write a review. We've gotten lots of great ratings, but we haven't gotten a review in a while. So write one. Even They're if waiting just... for us to come back and yeah. start doing for real shows again. It's exactly. Even just, you know, just a line or two. And also, you, it's not too late, although, you know, the big launch was a couple weeks ago. Don't forget to buy Kristen's book, The Selfie Vote, which is available everywhere fine books are sold. And she has a website, standalone The Selfie Vote website, where you can read all about it. And if you like the book, you can review it on Amazon as well. And- ah, Yes. <laughs> Lots if of you don't like the book, <laughs> maybe just rant against me anonymously on a message board. Perfect. That's going to be a great day at <laughs> DC Urban Moms. <laughs> okay, thanks. When we listen to the radio, we never agree on the station. Classic rock. Hip hop. Pop. Guys, quiet. The one thing we do agree on, we all want an awesome free phone. That's why we switched to MetroPCS. Stop by MetroPCS with the whole family and get four free phones of your choice from brands you love, like Samsung, Motorola, and LG when you switch. MetroPCS. Wireless. Figured out. Coverage not available in some areas. Sales tax not included in phone price. Free phone requires port. Excludes numbers on the T-Mobile network. See store for details and terms and conditions.